Hey, hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Kimberly Crenshaw's Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, which was a pretty seminal text putting forward a notion of intersectionality that many feminist theorists make pretty strident use of and some still don't make very good use of. And it's obviously a very big problem within various feminist communities and, and other communities as well. But before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy to see mostly pictures of my cats, that is. I'm also on Twitter at David Guineo if you want to follow me there, even though I don't post all that much, which is bad, but I'm trying to correct that. If you're new, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way that makes them accessible to you. So if you are new, like, share, subscribe. You know, uh, I want to hear you, see you back here, comment so that I can hear from you, find out who you are. I read all the comments. I don't have time to respond to all of them now, but just know that I read every single one. Um, if you found this in podcast form, you'll be able to find it on YouTube, where sometimes I release videos. If you found it on YouTube, you're going to be able to find this in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads. And yeah, don't waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's jump into this seminal essay. So she was writing this at a time in the late 80s, in 1989, 1988, when feminist and legal scholars were very much under the impression that something like gender or things like gender and race are mutually exclusive. So there's no way to bridge the two. Now, the big focus of her essay here is on the legal system because she was a legal scholar, but she was interested in the way in which in the legal system in the United States, in the courts, either a complaint would need to be raised on the basis of discrimination in terms of race or discrimination in terms of gender. There was no way to bridge the two. And it was something that she saw was a glaring hole within the domain of uh, the legal system within the United States. And this approach essentially marginalizes those who are multiply burdened. So people who are burdened in terms of both their race and their gender in relation to patriarchy, in relation to white supremacy, then do not get the kind of recognition that they might need to then usurp that power or to begin to undo that power. Now, her focus here is on race and sex, but you know this can also apply to uh, sexual orientation, gender, uh, and anything of that sort as well, religion too, where people are marginalized not only in terms of their either their skin color or their sex or gender, but instead as well upon a whole slew of other factors, including of course race as well, a race sorry class as well, and you know go, the list goes on and on. So while her focus here is on the legal system and, and its refusal to acknowledge multiply burdened people or people burdened in multiple ways, she is also extending this to consider and to criticize many feminist circles that seek only to represent affluent or rich white women and, and kind of centering those experiences as the universal experience of women all across the, the globe, which has resulted in you know, many, many negative things. But one of the ways that this manifests itself is white women speaking on behalf of women of color all around the world and even, you know, within the United States without actually being equipped to understand, let alone, let alone actually speak about those kinds of experiences. Now, for those people that might be listening and saying, well, okay, this is 
only a submission to the notion of identity politics. And what it is doing is reducing people to these identity markers. And, you know, there might be some well-meaning people out there that say the goal should be to move beyond gender as a category, to move beyond race as determining categories. And while that would be a great world to live in, it, that's not the way that it plays out. And as we will see throughout the course of this essay, she presents many examples, well, three examples specifically, of the ways in which corporations and big companies make use of the capacity or make use of multiply burdened people to better exploit them. So while many of us well-intentioned people might say that we have to get beyond identifying gender, identifying race as determining characteristics of someone's place in the world, all the while we are saying that, these people are still being exploited on the basis of those identity markers. So specifically, in the course of the essay, she focuses on three cases brought forward to the courts in the United States, and I'm going to go through each of them on their own, but the three of them are uh, DeGraffenreid versus General Motors, or V General Motors, Moore v. Hughes Helicopter, and Pay v. Payne, sorry, v. Travenal. Now I'm going to go through each one so you don't have to remember those, uh, you know, all those names right away. Uh, so let's start with the first one here, DeGraffenreid v. General Motors. So in this case, five black women reported or they brought forward a complaint that General Motors was discriminating against them on the basis of their being black women. And prior to 1964 at General Motors, they never hired a black woman. And all black women hired after 1970 were laid off in what they called a seniority-based layoff. Now the courts were quick to do away with this complaint, to do away with this case, because these women were bringing forward the complaint that they were being discriminated against on the basis of being black women. Now in the eyes of the court, they only operate with what Crenshaw here calls a single axis framework. So they only see it as being either people are discriminated against on the basis of their race or their gender. It can't be both. And the way that they were able to undo or the court was able to throw out this case was by saying to these women, well, how can you prove that you are being discriminated against on the basis of gender and race if you don't individually or singularly prove that you are being discriminated against firstly, or doesn't matter the order, but both on the basis of race and on the basis of gender? So one of the things that kind of backfired on them, and no way they wouldn't have had any way to know this, was the fact that black men were succeeding and white women were succeeding. So the court was able to say, well, it looks like race isn't a factor because these other black people, these black men are succeeding and gender doesn't seem to be a factor because these white women are succeeding. So they're able to say there therefore doesn't seem to be any possible way to look at this as a situation of discrimination because people are neither being discriminated against on the basis of race and gender. And it would be therefore wrong for them to create a separate category of black women, this intersectional category, because that is way too complicated for the courts, at least this is their argument, they were able to then cover up or to swipe under the rug or push under the rug the situation that was going on by saying that it's too complicated, it can't be proved that black women are experiencing oppression because it couldn't be approved that people were uh, suffering discrimination on the basis of either race or gender, so therefore it couldn't be both. So in Crenshaw's word, she says that under this view, 
this kind of single axis framework that looks only on race or gender, but not both. She says that under this view, black women are protected only to the extent that their experiences coincide with those of either black men or white women. So in order for them to actually be represented in the courts, they would need to come forward with only the case of gender discrimination or race discrimination, which would mean then that they would need to prove that the same thing was occurring, let's say in the case of race, to the black men as well. And what that would do would tacitly make black women's experiences only valuable as it relates to a what I will just kind of vulgarly call a more dominant or more privileged group to which they are or have some relationship to or some connection with. So in the case of gender, they would have to have some kind of commonality with the experiences of white women. And in the case of race, they would then need to have some kind of commonality in the experiences of black men. Because if black men were to say they weren't being discriminated against, then that would be enough evidence for GM to say, no, we are not discriminating on the base of race. Likewise, if white women said we aren't being discriminated against, then that would mean that they, in the company at large, people are not being discriminated against on the base of gender. And that puts us here into the second case that she presents, and that's the one Moore versus Hughes helicopter. In this case, the complaint was that, or the case was that, uh, Hughes Helicopter was systematically keeping black women out of upper positions, out, out of seniority positions or senior positions. So in very much the same way, the court was quick to do away with this case by saying that, well, it can't be proven that this is happening to all women because there are white women in these roles. So therefore, they can't bring this forward on the basis of gender, nor for the same reasons could they do it on the basis of race. So Moore brought forward all these stats that essentially laid out the fact that black women are experiencing discrimination disproportionately or are being excluded from positions disproportionately to other groups, which would signal then that they themselves, because they are experiencing this discrimination somehow, you know, on its own or separate from the way that other people within those possible categories are experiencing discrimination that therefore means that there's something going on and that it should be taken seriously but the the court was quick to do away with any use of these stats even though you know you think of stats you think of neutrality you think of objectivity all that of course the court was quick to do away with that because stats don't necessarily prove anything without proper context at least in their eyes so just because more brought forward these stats that black women were being systematically excluded from these positions, the company was able to turn around and say, no, none of those women were properly qualified for the positions, therefore, we have done nothing wrong. To which you can't refute it because they set the conditions for the possibility of entering those senior positions. In kind of a, a pernicious or a kind of evil twist, the court, by putting this case away or by kind of doing away with this case, actually kind of believe themselves to be, or itself to be righteous and to be fighting for inclusivity because they thought that Moore's complaint that black women were being systematically uh, kept out of these upper positions was actually discrimination against white women because it was excluding their experiences with gender-based discrimination, which is just a total, it's just uh, quite a way um, to gaslight 
Moore coming forward with these cases because they're, she's being turned around or they're turning around and saying it is, no, you, you're the one that's being discriminatory by not including the experiences of white women. Now, of course, had the tables been turned, it's difficult to imagine that a court would say to a white woman bringing forward this complaint, well, what about the black women in this workplace? How are they being received? How are they faring in this system? Because whiteness is just taken as being the kind of universal experience, the universal way of looking and being in the world, and all other kinds, all other ways of being in the world are seen as derivative. And the only way that we can make sense of the derivative is by having it always be tethered to and always be referred back to the dominant position. So in the case of white women, when gender is brought forward as a way that through which they are being discriminated against, it, it, their narrative almost goes like this. It goes like, if I weren't a woman, I would be in this better position. Like if I were only a man, I would be doing better in the world. So that is a way by which they are able to prove, ostensibly prove that discrimination is occurring because it is purely on the basis of their gender that they are being discriminated against. But in the case of black women, they do not have that privilege to say, well, if it weren't for my gender, I wouldn't be discriminated against because then they would still be contending with their blackness that is still a marker of difference that is discriminated against and that is a site of prejudice or it is a site against which prejudice exerts its force. Now, all of these strategies, all of these kind of subtle ways of maintaining the, the current system work quite effectively at, at maintaining that system in that they almost cast themselves as being the righteous ones, of doing the right thing, of not being exclusionary, and kind of what we now hear, what we may now hear about like reverse discrimination or reverse racism, where when these black women are bringing forward the case that they are being specifically targeted, being specifically, uh, I guess, challenged or being inhibited from entering certain positions, then the people in power turn around and say that they are the ones being racist for not considering white women, or they're being sexist for not considering, uh, you know, white women. And that puts us here into the third case that she looks at, and that is Payne v. Travenal, where two black women brought forward a case about racist discrimination of all, all black workers there. And in doing so, they were somewhat successful because they were representing all black people working at Travenal, whatever Travenal is. And this is obviously a good thing, but it comes at the expense of properly acknowledging the ways that black women experience discrimination in a way that is different from black men. So none of this is surprising for Crenshaw because in the legal system in the United States, discrimination is kind of defined or has to be proved to be directed against an entire group, like either women or black people. It can't be some mix or some small group within this broader group. And this is our partly due to our obsession with broad categories that we can easily make sense of. We very much forego nuance in favor of very easy to digest categories. And to return to this idea that is put forward by like white women that, you know, if it wasn't for their gender, they would be able to have, uh, they would be able to attain X, Y, and Z benefits, or they would get X, Y, Z promotions or whatever. And it is only on the basis of their gender that they are being discriminated against. To illustrate this, she puts forward an analogy of a basement. 
So in the basement, you have people all standing, a bunch of people standing there, and on their shoulders are other people, I guess, kind of sitting on their shoulders, and upon their shoulders are, are, are other people sitting. Now, the people on the top, that is the third person up upon the, you know, the other two people's shoulders that are beneath them, says, I could get to the upper floor if only the ceiling wasn't in the way. And so the people up top are like, oh, okay, let me cut cut a hole. Let me make it possible for the people who are relatively in a better position than the ones beneath them to then get up into the hole. That doesn't at all accommodate the people who are beneath them. It only accommodates people who have already attained some degree of privilege to have arrived at that, to be the third person on top of everyone else or on top of the two people beneath them that gets them to the top floor. So for them, it's just the narrative goes as follows. If it weren't for the ceiling, I would be in the next floor. I would be above all this. But for the people beneath them, it's like, if it weren't for the ceiling and the person above me, then I would be able to get above here or be able to get out of here. Now, whether or not that's the best analogy or metaphor, who knows? But in any case, it illuminates the situation, I think, fairly well. Now, these intersectional approaches or this refusal to acknowledge intersectionality is not just found within the legal system, of course, and I've already alluded to this, but of course as well within feminist and also civil rights circles, where feminists often exclude blackness, and she points out the ways that civil rights circles often exclude women, and that becomes a project primarily for black men. Now, there's an irony in all of this, especially in terms of black women within feminist circles, and that is because white women have been quick to take from the work of black women to further their own project, if we can call it that. Like, for example, the, the speech uh, by Sojourner Truth, Ain't I a Woman, in which she describes in, in pretty gruesome detail the horrors of slavery and how it really troubles the notion of women or equating women with a kind of fragility, with a purity, with all that, to which her point was, this: these ideas do not apply to black women who are forced to go through extreme conditions in order to survive. Now, white women have taken up this mantra, this question, ain't I a woman, to challenge patriarchal assumptions about them, totally evacuating it of its critical potential for black women and just whitewashing it, turning it into something that white women uses, completely detaching it from its context that is one described by a black women woman to challenge not only patriarchy, not only assumptions about womanhood, but to challenge white women as well as being the purveyors, to being the propagators of these very forms of oppression that work against black women. So when white women, especially feminists that she you know, uh, Crenshaw's writing against, try to describe women as being constructed as passive and men as active under patriarchy. And this is a theme we've probably all heard to some extent. Men are more active and dominant and women are more passive and uh, sub sub they uh, submit more to authority, whatever kind of garbage, um, you know, pop psychology you might have heard something like that from. It doesn't apply to black women who are have been repeatedly framed and depicted as being tough. And at the same time, we see black men being constantly infantilized, emasculated, if I can use that term, in ways that 
really, uh, I guess, reverse the assumptions that that center whiteness that, you know, white women can speak to because they're constructed as passive, but they then take that to be a universal condition of all women. Of course, all they're doing is transposing or transmitting, kind of extending their experiences onto the rest of the world. And additionally, the whole narrative around white women, you know, wanting to get out of the home because they don't want to just be a, a house mom or, you know, a, essentially a house worker doesn't apply to black women who often didn't have homes in the United States. Or if they did have a home, in order for them to maintain it required that they went and worked in white women's homes primarily, probably to take care of the white women's kids as the white women started to go out and get corporate jobs, you know, an upper management, get a good salary and all that all on the backs of black women who would get barely a barely acceptable wage if it was acceptable. Now all these notions about sensitivity and purity and gentleness that are associated with women also seeps into the criminal justice system where in a case of like sexual assault against a white woman, it is often depicted or understood as having a pure woman having her purity taken away by an aggressive man. Now that is not how the justice system views it when it is a black woman who is experiencing or experiences sexual assault. Oftentimes, if it was done at the hands of a white man, it would not even be taken seriously historically in the, in the United States because black women were not seen as being pure. Now, of course, intersectionality raises some issues within the black community because it will hold black men accountable for being oppressive against black women. And it won't just say, oh, we must have some kind of identitarian uh, affiliation or, you know, we must form some union among all black people between men and women to further their anti-racist project. They won't just say that without also holding men, black men accountable for maintaining patriarchy in very many forms. And this came out with all the, or she discusses the film, The Color Purple, in which a black man is depicted as being quite uh, violent, as being quite abusive. And for some, they didn't like that, that is people within the black community, because they didn't want black men to be depicted in this way, because it was seen as being a way to hinder their attempts at challenging racism, because it cast black men in a negative light. To which Crenshaw says, well, all that is doing is reframing the problem as being primarily one, or racism, being primarily one that is inflicted against black men. And when we ignore the ways that black men uphold this system, we are ignoring the ways that black women are specifically marginalized within that system. Now, this is in no way to say that black men are somehow more aggressive than any other group. Absolutely not. But Crenshaw is just trying to call attention to the fact that black women experience discrimination differently than black men. Likewise, black women experience discrimination differently from white women. So the goal of intersectional feminism for Crenshaw is to develop a bottom-up approach, not a top-down approach, because a top-down approach looks at the big categories and it takes as the kind of point of departure the dominant experiences, that is, the, the experiences of white men. And then from there, everything else is seen as derivative and only measured in relation to that experience of the white man. Now, a bottom-up approach 
assumes at first that people are multidimensional. People aren't just one identity. People are comprised of many different identities, sometimes not even identities, at least insofar as identities lend themselves to the dominant framework. They are just their own characteristics that are that kind of flow together in, in an endless possibility. And we must first acknowledge that before it will be possible to properly challenge the kinds of authorities that input themselves to, that maintain oppression and maintain broad categories in order to more easily discriminate against and exploit people on the basis of those categories. And that's more or less it. I, um, it's really a great essay and one that many people would probably have to read if they were taking uh, English course or intro to maybe uh, gender studies or any kind of critical race um, course. And it's, it's obviously really great stuff. And it's something we have to take very seriously given the ways that black people and we must include within this, you know, Muslim people, indigenous people in the North American context, how they are continually discriminated against. And that, that more or less covers it. If there's anything I excluded or something I should have elaborated on, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Um, if you like what I did, like, share, tell your friends. Uh, maybe they'll get a real kick of it out of it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave five stars. If you like what I did, leave a review. And yeah, I'll catch you next time. Take care.